like that, right? Well, I want to rejoin the story of Daniel that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. We're going to finish out chapter 1 this morning, just kind of read the tail end of it. I want to remind you kind of where we left uh, our hero. It's kind of like, uh, it reminds me a little bit of the old Batman series, you know, last time, you know, where we, we pick it up right here. Where did we leave our, our hero? It's not the dynamic duo. There's, there's four of them here. It's Daniel and his three buddies. But um, Daniel and his three buddies, at this point in the story, they are now in Babylon. Right? We kind of have been talking about their captivity, them being taken back to Babylon. They are now in Babylon. They are living in Babylon and they are embarking on what is going to be a three-year program of training for the king's service. They got to go through this three-year, uh, could we call it apprenticeship for service in the king's palace. And it's been a difficult process for them in learning that this is what their life is going to be about because there's areas that feel like areas of compromise. And yet last week we talked about this to to my surprise. Uh, We find areas where they're willing to submit. You know, they're they're going to be indoctrinated in Babylonian literature, uh, Babylonian culture, Babylonian language. Uh, They have agreed to serve the Babylonian government. They're going to work for the enemy, so to speak, here. But there has been at least one area, we talked about this last week, the area of diet, where they have successfully defended a moral boundary. But even when they did that, they did it with grace. And they did it with great humility. And so we pick up the story and and these last handful of verses in chapter one are really just the synopsis now of how their training went. It says, beginning in Daniel chapter one, verse 17, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. Excuse me. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. We'll stop there. As I've mentioned already, we presume that Daniel is no more than 15 years old or so when he was captured. If that's the case, then the three years that we kind of get in synopsis form here essentially encapsulate Daniel's high school career. Can you imagine that? How's that for high school? Does it remind you of your own high school experience? I mean, we all got some stories to share from high school, right? Please don't share those out loud right now. We'd have to have a whole different kind of service. But at Daniel's high school experience, I think, is a little bit different than what you or I are likely to remember from, from high school. Daniel and his buddies are going through a very strict academic regimen. They have Babylonian literature. They have classes in governmental policy. They have classes in royal etiquette for the king's service. They do not have any blow-off classes. They do not get to take intro to cinema. There's no study hall in their schedule. It's work, 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 work for these young men. 
How about growing boys? How many of us have had or remember having teenage boys in the household, right? They eat and they eat and they eat and they eat. And Daniel and his buddies are going to eat and eat and eat. But they are eating the restrictive diet that they've chosen. The restrictive diet, not eating, uh, as the Bible refers to it, the rich food from the king's table, but the restrictive diet. But all the while, as they're eating and eating and eating of this diet that they've chosen, they're doing so under the watchful eyes of their attendants, because it's very important that these young, maturing, adolescent men develop physically, because part of what they're being prepared for is to be the ideal physical specimens suitable for the emperor's throne room. Now, they do have the blessing of of God on their lives. They have the development of what I think we would call spiritual gifts. They're growing spiritually during this time. But all the while, while this is happening, I believe Daniel and his buddies are coping with slowly fading memories of the details of, of their childhood homeland along with certainly the occasional updates they would get on the ongoing ruin of their beloved hometown. This is Daniel's adolescence. These are Daniel's teenage years. This is high school for him. This is Daniel entering adulthood. All the while he's doing this, he's learning how to maintain his righteousness while surrounded by a world that is in spiritual ruin. So I think we can learn a few things from this teenager about how best to live in a world that is typically in conflict with the way of life that we've been called to live as the people of God. You see, we aren't political prisoners like Daniel was, not in the sense that he was, but I believe that we are, in a manner of speaking, uh, captives to a foreign kingdom who have nevertheless been called to live out our lives in righteousness. But God did not abandon Daniel, did he? And neither has God abandoned us. God has not left us without resource. God is still at work in the lives of his people, even when those lives are spent in the foreign kingdom. And Daniel's story shows us how God is at work. The first thing we find out is this. God gives natural skills to the righteous. He gives natural ability and natural skills to the righteous. Did you catch it? It was in the very first line that I read to you from scripture. It says, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and of wisdom. Now, to me, this is the first surprise in the story because if I had been writing the story, I would have expected God would somehow want to prevent Daniel and his friends from having to go through Babylonian indoctrination. I would have expected Daniel and his friends to pray for deliverance. Isn't that what we do? If I were in their position, I would have asked God to perform a miracle so that I could be released from the foreign kingdom and and be sent home to live where I was meant to be. It wouldn't have occurred to me that being righteous in ruin might involve taking an even deeper dive into the kingdom of spiritual ruin. But that's exactly what happened. I wouldn't have wanted to do that. I would have wanted to stay as far away from that Babylonian learning as possible, and I would have believed the entire time that I was doing God's will as I did it. But God did the opposite of that. God made Daniel 
sparked. Daniel and his friends, they made the dean's list and the honor roll at Babylon Central High School. They graduated at the top of their class with a 4.0 GPA summa cum laude, and Daniel was the valedictorian. Because these boys had an unwavering commitment to God, God made them successful in their studies. He gave them a natural aptitude and understanding for the things that they were being taught. And I believe he wants to do the same for us. Now, I'm not suggesting that God only uses smart people. Please don't amen that. I'm not saying that God will only love you if you got some brains in your head. I'm not saying if you want to serve the Lord, you better get your SAT and ACT scores up. Uh, but in the case of Daniel and his three buddies, they were specifically being trained for their brains. Their intelligence is what was going to open doors for them and get them into the places that God wanted them to be. So God blessed them with the natural ability to do their job well. And really, when you think of it that way, we shouldn't be too terribly surprised because we see that happen throughout Scripture. Bezalel is a character from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. He's the very per first person in Scripture about whom the Word of God says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting about that is that when the book of Exodus tells us that this man Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit, it explains why he was filled by the Holy Spirit. The word actually says he was filled by the Holy Spirit, and because of that, he was a master craftsman. Expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. Bezalel was a general contractor, and he was very good at what he did. Why? Because God made him that way. A slightly more famous example from the Old Testament would be King David, right? King David, long before he was King David, was musician David. He was the guy with the gig on the weekends. And he was very good at what he did. The word of God says that God had given Dan, David, excuse me, musical gifts. In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, he's described this way, a talented harp player, and the Lord is with him. God made him good at music. And that's how he found himself into the ways and into the places that God had for him. We could go back much earlier than that, all the way to the book of Genesis, and read the story of the patriarch Jacob. Jacob, who of all things was skilled at animal husbandry. The word of God says that Jacob was skilled at tending to flocks and getting them to multiply and grow. And now he had some interesting techniques on how he went about that. We'll save that for another sermon. But he was very, very good at it. The Bible says that when Jacob was in charge of the flocks for his father-in-law Laban, and I quote, Laban's wealth increased enormously because God had given Jacob a particular skill when it came to breeding animals. Then later on in his story, Jacob finally gets the opportunity to have some flocks of his own. In Genesis chapter 30, we learn that Jacob himself became very wealthy with large flocks of sheep, sheep, excuse me, and goats, camels, and donkeys. Now, I believe that God is looking for righteous people that he can bless with all kinds 
of natural abilities. I believe that churches should be full of godly people who are advancing in their careers, sought after for their skills, well regarded by those in the world for their expertise. Look at what it says. Let me remind you of what it says about what Nebuchadnezzar thought of Daniel. The verses we read said no one impressed him as much as Daniel. He found Daniel and his buddies 10 times more capable than anyone else. Now, God's purpose in doing this isn't to make you rich or famous. It's not to make you powerful or or well-versed in the ways of this world in and of itself. God's purpose is to open the doors that will put you in the places God wants you. It might be a career skill, but it could be a hobby. It could be a trade. It could be an expertise, an interest, or a unique insight into how something works. But unique skills open unique doors in life. There are things that you guys are good at that I'm no good at. And your skill in those areas is going to allow you to take the gospel into places that I could never go. Unique skills open unique doors in life and God can give you the skills you need to put you in the places that he has prepared for you. Oh, and God doesn't stop there. Our God isn't merely sovereign over the natural order of the universe. He's the God of the supernatural, isn't he? And he leverages that for his people. So we have to add on to what we've said. Yes, God gives natural gifts to the righteous, but also God gives supernatural skills to the righteous. Supernatural skills to the righteous. It said that he gave them a natural aptitude for the learning they had done, but the second half of that verse is that God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. And that special ability, that supernatural gift is going to become a huge part of Daniel's story in the coming years of his life. But for now, I I don't want to get too far into that issue. Uh, There will be plenty on the issue of dreams and interpretations and visions in the coming weeks as we study this story together. Instead, for today, let's just focus on the principle we see here. God is saying, yes, I want to give my righteous people gifts and talents in the natural realm. But I also want to fill them with abilities that defy natural explanation. Why? Because I'm a miracle-working God. It's what I do. You might see an area of ruin in your own life, and you might think, there's no way. I can't overcome that. Nothing I could ever do could possibly resolve this situation for God's glory. And you know what? We need to acknowledge that sometimes the spiritual ruins of the earthly kingdom we live in are just bigger than our natural abilities. Moses was a great leader, wasn't he? But even he didn't have the ability to get 2 million Israelites across the Red Sea. Joshua was a brilliant tactician, but even he wasn't going to be able to breach the walls around Jericho. Paul and Silas were great missionaries, but even their finely tuned skills and persuasion weren't going to get them out of that jail cell in Philippi. No, these situations and countless others like them, what did they require? They required a miracle. They required a miracle. Well, you know, we call these sorts of things miracles. We, we describe them, as I did, as, as supernatural, but really, they're just phenomenon from another kingdom. Did you ever think of it that way? 
Did you ever stop to think that in a matter of speaking, there are no miracles in heaven? There's just business as usual. It's another kingdom with another way of doing things, another way that's unfamiliar to us on earth. But in heaven, they don't go around saying, oh, a miracle. No, it's, it's just everyday business. It's everyday life. It, it seems miraculous to us when every once in a while the everyday business of heaven breaks through and invades earth. Did you, did you ever see or, or do you remember the, the Christmas movie, Elf? <laughs> Buddy the Elf? I mean, if that's not one of your favorite Christmas movies, I think you're probably going to be in the back row in heaven. It's, uh, <laughs> do you remember the scene when, when Buddy... Buddy, if you're not familiar, I'm going to pray for you, but let me just set this up for you. <laughs> Buddy is a human who has been... Uh, raised by elves at the North Pole. And he, as an adult, believing that he's an elf, makes his way back to New York City to, to meet his father, who, by the way, is on the naughty list. Do you remember the scene where Buddy and his half-brother are pinned down in the snow in Central Park and the bullies are throwing snowballs at him? Do you remember that scene? And, and they're stuck and there's nothing they can do. There's no way they're going to get out of that scenario, Right. And so Buddy says to, to, to the little boy who's his half-brother, just make all the snowballs you can make. And, and the little boy picks up some snow and packs it and then turns around. And in the five or so seconds that it's taken him to make a snowball, Buddy has made, what, 100 snowballs? Something like that. And then, you know, they, they got bullies on the bridge and around him, lobbing snowballs surrounding him. And all of a sudden, Buddy stands up. And he starts throwing snowballs like a machine gun. And, you know, because he's an elf from the North Pole. Well, he's not an elf. He's a human raised by elves. But this is just how life works in, in his home. And, and the one bully's ring, you know the scene. The bully's running. He's like 100 yards away. And Buddy's like, and he lobs the snowball. And it hits the guy in the back from, from 100 yards away. How does he do it? From our perspective, it, it's a miracle. No human being could do that, right? But for Buddy, that's just the ordinary way of life. Back in the far off kingdom he calls home. Aren't you glad that as a follower of Jesus Christ, your home is in a kingdom where every day diseases are healed, needs are met, enemies are scattered, and the dead are raised to life? That's just everyday reality in the kingdom you call home. And so when you live in righteousness, don't be too surprised when the business of your home kingdom leaks into the ruins of this world. We can call it a miracle. We can call it the supernatural. But God's just saying, hey, this is how we roll back home. This is how we do it. There's a final verse in the chapter that we haven't read yet, but I want to take a look at it. It's verse 21. It says simply this. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Not too much there, kind of a throwaway line, just kind of putting a button on this introductory chapter, explaining to us what's going to happen now. We'll launch into chapter two next week when the story really gets moving. But you know, he remained in service until the first year of King Cyrus. When you line that verse up against what we know about Babylonian history, it gets a little bit more interesting. 
Now, I would imagine that most of you probably have the succession of Babylonian kings committed to memory. I did not. I had to research this, and I looked it up. So on the off chance that you don't have it all, I put it in a chart. And I know you're already rejoicing because you came today thinking, I hope Dan's got a chart in that church. You know, a few weeks ago, he gave us a map. What we need is a good chart. So I got a chart for you. I want you to take a look at this. This chart is a list of the kings of Babylonia during, or the kings in Babylonia during Daniel's life. I titled the chart, There's a New Sheriff in Town. Because that's essentially what we have here at the top. We have Nebuchadnezzar II, who is the king who we've been, already been talking about. And he's going to rule for 40 years there. You can see this is all from, from secular history. These are dates that we know that we've confirmed. We've got this all together. Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule for about 40 years there uh, and be kind of the unquestioned superpower for a good long time. A good, good long time. But when Nebuchadnezzar finally dies, um, things get interesting. He is succeeded by a king named Amal Marduk, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son, but Amal Marduk is not Nebuchadnezzar's oldest son. And so his reign from the very beginning is in dispute. His brothers and sisters aren't exactly sure how Amal Marduk got picked to be the next king, and so they don't really like that. So he's king for a relatively short period, only about two years, and it's very tumultuous two years, before a guy by the name of, I'm going to try this here, I didn't practice this as much as I practiced the biblical names. Nereglissa. Anybody here named Nereglissa? Okay, good. I can pronounce it however I want. I don't need to worry about offending you. Now, here's the interesting. Nereglissa isn't even one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons. Nereglissa is a dude who married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. And the whole family is in turmoil trying to figure out why did Alma get the throw and Nereglissa says, doesn't matter. I married the oldest sister. He kicks Amal Marduk out, puts him in exile, and Nereglisser, who isn't even himself technically part of the royal family, takes the throne. And he reigns for a little bit longer and exercises a little bit more control and stability. In fact, he dies while he's still king, and his son, Labashi Marduk, who is now even further removed from legitimacy of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, lineage, Labashi Marduk takes the throne, but you can see that Labashi Marduk reigns for only two months. Because at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's family is like, hey, this guy, we didn't even invite him to Thanksgiving. Like, he's not one of us. And so Labashi Marduk gets murdered two months into his own reign, and he is succeeded not by any part of Nebuchadnezzar's family, but by a dude. Just a guy, a royal, no claim to the throne at all, but he's amassed enough power here. His name is Nabonidus. Anybody here named Nabonidus? It's not like your middle name or anything? Okay, I'm good. I'm good. We're going to go with Nabonidus. Nabonidus takes the throne. You know, nature abhors a vacuum, so he sets himself up as king. He's good to go. But see, he's smart. He's a smart guy. He's seen that this whole succession thing has not gone well in the past. And he wants to make sure that when he dies, his son has a legitimate claim to the throne. So partway through Nabonidus' reign, he installs his son Belshazzar, who if you know the story of Daniel is going to creep up in this story a little bit later. He installs his son Belshazzar as co-regent, co-manager. Co-king. Isn't that sweet of them? That they could share? The Lord loves sharing, you know. 
So the Nabonidus and Belshazzar become co-regents over Babylon, over, over Babylon. But um, they're not, what's the word? Good. <laughs> they're not good at being in charge. And it's under their reign that the entire kingdom of Babylon begins to crumble. And meanwhile, the Persian Empire is rising in, in power off to the east. The Persian Empire is becoming a threat. And the Persians are invading the outer reaches of Babylon and generally taking more and more influence until finally Nabonidus and Belshazzar are so inept that the, Persian, the Persians march right into Babylon without so much as a fight. There's no final battle. They just kind of show up in Babylon and they say to Nabonidus and Belshazzar, guess what? We're in charge now. And Nabonidus and Belshazzar are like, I. <laughs> and that's the beginning of the Persian Empire. And at the very beginning of the Persian Empire, they install this guy by the name of Darius the Mede. He's not really going to be the king there, but they install him as kind of a provincial king in that region while the emperor is attending to getting the entire empire in order. And then finally, at some point, Cyrus II, or as we often call him, Cyrus the Great, emperor of Persia, shows up in Babylon and assumes the throne. Look at that chart. How's that for a Game of Thrones? That's how it went. And through every one of those administrations, as the new king would come and sit down on that throne, he often was having the advisors and the council and the family members of the previous regent murdered or exiled or imprisoned. But every time that guy said, save me, Daniel, I want to work with that dude. Save me, Daniel. I want to work with that guy. Daniel served in Babylon during every one of those seven administrations in a timeline that would span almost 70 years. I read this week a story about a, an American man by the name of Wilson German. Wilson German was a White House butler who began working in the White House for President Eisenhower in the year 1957. Over the course of 55 years, Wilson would serve 11 American presidents before finally retiring during the Obama administration, from Eisenhower to Obama. And that's noteworthy, because even in the United States, where we pride ourselves on this peaceful transition of power, even in the United States, the, the new president cleans house, doesn't he? It's all new political advisors. It's all new cabinet members. It's all new people in important advisory roles. Yes, they oftentimes will keep the White House staff in place, you know, positions like butlers and cooks and things like that. However, it's not uncommon that eventually they decide, you know what, I want to do this a different way. You know what, I want to bring the guy who served me in the governor's mansion back when I was governor. He's going to come and work here now. You know what, I want to try things a different way. And so even in that role, there's a lot of turnover in the White House. And somehow Wilson German survived 55 years and 11 American presidents. But you know what? Daniel's got him beat. Daniel's got him beat. And here's the amazing thing. Daniel wasn't a butler. He wasn't a housekeeper. He was a political advisor. 
Can you imagine, we have a Democratic president now, can you imagine a Republican president uh, being elected and saying, you know what, I want to keep the same Secretary of State. I'd like to keep the Secretary of Defense. I think they were doing a pretty good job. That, that would be unheard of. That would, we wouldn't even conceive of something like that in our nation. Now, these guys are competing with, we have an entire change in empire, right? We go from Babylon to Persia, and still they're like, you know what? I think I would like Daniel to be my advisor. <laughs> Daniel had unimaginable favor with the men that he served. I can't imagine that anyone could earn favor with that many different kinds of earthly kings over that long a period of time. But here's what I think that means. The righteous people of God don't need to earn favor with earthly kings as long as they're living in favor with their heavenly king. Can we end the message today by just saying this? God's favor transcends man's, mankind's. God's favor transcends mankind's. Follower of Jesus, who are you trying to please? Living in Babylon, as we all metaphorically do, oftentimes means trying to find favor with your boss or, or with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with the government, with all kinds of people with various kinds of authority. It is an overwhelming, impossible task. And I don't need to tell you where you're going to end up mentally, emotionally, and spiritually if you spend your life trying to please people. So don't be tricked. Don't think that living a righteous life means being a people pleaser. Seek instead to please God, to earn his favor, to live with humility with the people around you as Daniel did. Do that. And I believe the other relationships in your life will fall into the places that God wants them to be. It reminds me of the song we used to sing in church when I was a little boy. It comes right from a line that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Seek God's kingdom first. Could we insert the word favor there? Seek God's favor first. Seek his righteousness first. Make that the priority. And all of these other things, all of these earthly kings, all of the powers and principalities of this world will fall into place. They'll be added unto you. Why? Because God's favor transcends Mankind's. I wonder if Daniel and his three friends ever gathered in their room late into the night, you know, as teenagers do. I wonder if they ever talked about these things. I wonder if they ever said, man, can you believe, can you believe what we have lived through? I wonder if they ever swapped stories from school that day. I wonder if they talked or what they talked about is they tried to digest Babylon, as they tried to cope with the spiritual ruin that surrounded them. I wonder how they felt about the lives that God was calling them to live. I wonder if they got hungry. Teenage boys do, you know. Teenage boys stay up late. I know because I was one. Teenage boys stay late into the night. They need snacks. They need pizza rolls. They need 
chips. They need mac and cheese out of the microwave. I'm, I'm sensing a strong blessing in this part of the congregation over here. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if Daniel and his buddies just got, got hungry as they stayed up late into the night and they needed some snacks. I don't know how it would have worked, but I can imagine that if they called for the attendant and said, hey, could we get a little something, something here? We already know about their diet, right? We already know about their diet. So sadly for, for Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, there were no pizza rolls or microwave mac and cheese to be had. Um, it was the food that they had requested, the food that the attendant knew to bring them. It was the food from their homeland. And I wonder if as they sat up late at night and shared those snacks with each other, just the very process of eating a food that had significance to them, I wonder if it made them remember even more. I wonder if it made them remember even more who God had called them to be. Food has the ability to do that, doesn't it? Oh, I'm preaching to the choir here, aren't I? <laughs> but have you ever had grandma's recipe that you haven't had in years and years and years and you smell it cooking or take just a bite and it's like, I'm back, I'm back. You know, are there recipes in your family that have been handed down a little bit here? As an adult, have you ever walked into a place and, and the way they make chili smells just the way that your dad used to make chili back at home? Have you ever had that experience? Food does that, doesn't it? It transports us back to places, it brings up memories that we've forgotten. Is it a stretch to think that as Daniel and his buddies were sitting up at, at, at two in the morning, talking about what they had gone through, wondering you know, what Nebuchadnezzar was gonna ask them to do the next day, is it, is it a stretch that when they called out and said, hey, could, we're kinda hungry, could you bring us some of the grains and some of the water? As they ate them, they started to feel just a little bit more like, their old selves. I think that could have been part of what they experienced together. And so should we be terribly, terribly shocked that 600 years later, the Savior that they waited for but would never see sat around the table late at night with his buddies and he said, let's get some snacks. Let's get some food. Let's eat together. I want you to grab the communion emblems. Hopefully you grabbed them on the way in. If you didn't, the ushers will bring you some. I did not, so I'm gonna need the ushers to bring me one right now. I'm a little forgetful. Thank you. I'm feeling like Daniel Shadrach Meshach. You know, could you bring us a little something? A little something. Just a little something. I hope you'll not be too offended for me to talk about this, this holy moment in this way, because I recognize this is more than just a snack. We can't really equate what we're about to do with a bunch of hungry 14-year-olds wanting pizza rolls, right? I hope you'll not be too offended. But here's what I'm saying. These communion crackers, in the natural, they don't, they don't taste good, right? <laughs> I, I wish they were nacho flavored. <laughs> I wish I could dip them in something, right? Wouldn't that be, I wish we had a big bowl of them. 
And this juice. I wish it was carbonated. I wish you could get like code red. Communion, yeah. I wish it didn't separate in these little cups and get all kind of funky when we're trying to drink it, right? But I love this meal. I love this meal. There's something about this little, this little meal. And part of it is because I've heard the words of my Savior say, do this in remembrance of me. And part of it is because I stand in faith believing that the Spirit of the living God is doing exactly that in us when we eat it. I still remember the way my mom's tuna fish sandwiches taste. Because I eat them all the time when I was a little boy. I don't eat them very much anymore. But it's, it's imprinted in my brain. And there's something about taking a meal and putting it to our lips and saying, yeah, I remember. Now I remember who I was created to be. Now I remember what my Heavenly Father has said about me. Now I remember that the world of ruin that I see with eyes of flesh around me isn't what's most important, isn't what has the most influence, isn't what's significant about me. Now I remember that I was created for something different. If you want to remember that today, would you just share this meal with me? Jesus, we recognize that just as Daniel and his buddies probably sat around late into the night snacking as boys do, and just as countless billions of young boys and young girls, middle-aged men and women, grandmas and grandpas, throughout time and history have gathered round tables just to remember where they're from. In the very same way you invited us to a table, you said, I'm gonna serve you a meal. And every time you have this meal, I want you to remember where you're from. Lord, in a tiny cup with grape juice in it, we believe by faith you are calling us home. We receive your invitation today. Righteousness in ruin. <laughs> Pretty amazing, isn't it? To think that the God we serve could begin to deconstruct the evil and the sin and the filth that surrounds us with a late night snack with just a little emblem that says, this is who you are. Church, I want to pray that for you as you leave today. Would you join me? Father, remind us by your spirit of who we are. Remind us by your spirit of whose we are. 
Remind us by your spirit that while you have placed us in so many different ways, in the courtrooms, the very seats of power of Babylon, you have raised your people to live in this environment of spiritual ruin. It's not our ultimate purpose, but God, you have not abandoned us here. No, you have equipped us. And God, we believe by faith, you have called us even to live here. There's no accidents. So remind us by, our, by your spirit who we are. Fill us with giftedness for just this purpose. I thank you, Lord, that in this church family, there are such an amazing variety of, of gifts and talents and abilities. And some of them seem very, very obviously spiritual in nature. We have brilliant musicians in this room that can lead worship. We have gifted speakers. We have intelligent minds. We have Bible study leaders. We have ushers and greeters that, that greet us with warmth and with hospitality as we enter God's house. Some of those things seem very, very overtly spiritual. And yet there's gifts and abilities in this room that aren't as obviously spiritual. But God, maybe, maybe like, like Shadrach and Meshach, Abednego and Daniel, you're just saying, this is where I want you. And so I'm going to make you good at what you do. Thank you for the gifts and the abilities and the talents in this room. Thank you, Lord, that they're not the only thing we have to rely on. Thank you for the reminder that as followers of Jesus Christ, we find our citizenship in a different kingdom where things just go differently. And so we tend to call it miracles. We tend to call it supernatural. But Lord, remind our hearts today, oh, no, 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 no. That's just business as usual in your hometown. That's how things go. Remind us today that you have called us to live in a kingdom where disease and pain and sorrow and suffering and death have been abolished. They have no place. And Lord, we pray that in increasing measure they would just kind of leak out into the kingdoms of this world. Father, because we are yours, it's your favor that we seek. It's your favor that we seek. Lord, if you would have for us to serve the kings of this earth for 70 years, as they come and go and change, Lord, so be it. Help us to have the favor of those that you have called us to reach simply because we have your favor. Teach us to live this life well, we ask. And thank you, God, for the reminders that you have given us that this life that we endeavor to live well is not ultimately the life that we have been prepared for. As we prayed earlier this morning, Thank you, God, for saving us. We pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. And everybody says, amen, amen. amen.